We will be reading this morning first from Matthew 8, 18 through 22. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. And now Matthew 9, 9 through 13. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So there is, well, there's many famous lines, but I'm thinking about a specific famous line from the, the very, like, Oscar-worthy great movie, The Princess Bride, this morning, which is right up there. It's like 2001 A Space Odyssey and The Godfather and The Princess Bride, right, in competition for greatest movies ever made. Uh, and it's eminently quotable, but I'm specifically thinking of, if you haven't seen it, and I say that knowing most of you have probably seen it, but there, there's one character named Vizzini who keeps over and over saying, inconceivable, whenever these things happen as they're being chased by the dread pirate Roberts and finally they see him climbing up this unclimbable cliff face, and he goes, inconceivable. And this other character named Inigo Montoya says, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. And I uh, find myself often using that line. (laughs) I do not think that word means what you think it means. But particularly this morning, I'm reflecting on how often I struggle with the way that people talk about Christianity and use the term Christian in ways that make me feel that way. We, um, here's the thing, the term Christian appears in the New Testament, but it seems to largely be a term being used by people in the Roman world to kind of, in a dismissive way, categorize these new people who are following Jesus. It first appears in Acts 11, where it says that people are called Christians. It appears in Acts 26, when, uh, when one of these Greco-Roman rulers uses it to kind of dismiss Paul's message. And then in First Peter, as the term that people are using as they persecute these Christians. But it's not a label that Christians adopt uh, for themselves readily in the New Testament. Uh, they, they have lots of ways of talking. They're followers of the way. They're, uh, they use all these images of just like saints or brothers and sisters, family image, images of the household of God to talk about themselves. But they're resistant, it seems, within the New Testament to using a label. Now, I'm not going to say that that's, it's bad to use the term Christian, to be clear. But I do think we see that even... Um, Like, I I think part of the reason for that is because once we start using labels to talk about ourselves or the group we're in or whatever, it is so easy to to lose a sense of what that actually means, right? Of what the label means, what it's referring to, even to have what it means change over time. That's, 
look, I'm going to be a historian nerd for just a minute from my back in the days of college and stuff, but like, I think about that a lot with labels, even something as simple and foundational to American society as Democrats and Republicans, right? So the Democrat Party started in the 1920s, the Republican Party started in the 1950s, um, but back in the mid, or sorry, 1850s, and <laughs> I got a look from a review. <laughs> 1820s and 1850s, but back in the 1800s, right? Um, what's interesting is that the Democrat Party was largely seen as the conservative party that was suspicious of big government and strongly advocated for states' rights and was kind of the party of rural people and farmers. And the Republican Party was seen as the kind of federalist party that advocated for bigger government and more centralized government and was the kind of urban, more progressive party. And obviously today, right, that is almost entirely switched in terms of how we would think about the two political parties in America. And there's a whole historical story about why that happened with Reconstruction and the New Deal and Nixon's Southern strategy and stuff. And I, like three of you are excited, but that's not the sermon we're gonna preach, all right? But we recognize that happens with labels all the time. And I think that's a big part of why uh, the New Testament resists using simply a label to talk about us. Uh, we saw it in Matthew 9. This morning we're looking both at Matthew 8 with a couple of people that are seeking to follow Jesus and also at Matthew 9 as Jesus calls Matthew because they're related in theme. But it says, Jesus passed on from there. He saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Jesus is very unclear with people about what group they're joining when he calls them in the Gospels. He never says, come become blank, a Christian, become a, even like a follower of the way or something like that. What Jesus consistently says is simply follow me. It's not a sort of category or label, but a person and a change in life to follow that person that Jesus calls us to when we become disciples. And I think that the reason that, that that's the emphasis is simply because Jesus recognizes what can happen in our world when we lose sight of that. The reason I said at the beginning that I struggle with the way people use Christian is because that label can mean so many things, right? It can mean almost nothing. It can just mean like, well, you know, my parents identified this way, so I identify this way. Like I got baptized once or I went to camp once and made a decision or just I, you know, I think of myself as just an American or a good moral person or whatever. Um, but... But in scripture, the foundational question that's returned to over and over is not sort of what category or label you adopt, but it is, are you following Jesus? It is a call not to a label, but to a changed lifestyle and life, a call to a changed way of living as Jesus's follower. And throughout the Gospels, that's the thing that Jesus over and over explores, which is what does that mean? Given that that is true, right, given that we don't just have some label or check some box, but we're called to a new way of life that's redefined by Jesus, how is that supposed to change the way we live in the world? And this morning we see a couple of different ways that Jesus addresses that. So we're just going to walk through those. First of all, we see in our text this morning that Jesus would tell us that if that's what we're doing, becoming a follower of Jesus, adopting that way of life, then that means that we need a new relationship to comfort. We need a new relationship to comfort. So if you start in verse 18, it says, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. Now this is setting the stage as we're walking through Matthew, but if you've been thinking about this for 
a long time, Jesus has been ministering around this city called Capernaum um, in Galilee, and, and he's been ministering there, and these crowds are coming out, and he's getting really famous. And we see here that now he's about to cross the Sea of Galilee. He's actually going to move across to this area called the Decapolis. We'll see him working there in the next few weeks. Uh, that is an area that's largely full of Gentiles, not ethnically Jewish people, and it's a trip across a large lake to get there. And the point is that this is the point in Jesus's ministry where these people who are coming out and interested in what he's saying and stuff, this is the point where they either have to kind of get in the boat or call it quits, <laughs> kind of literally because they're crossing the sea. The point where they have to decide whether they're actually going to follow him. Up to now, they've been able to kind of come out and hear this guy teach and go back and take care of stuff at home and sleep in their nice comfortable bed. And now as Jesus is moving across the lake, the question is, are you actually going to follow me or not? And we meet a couple people who are confronted with that choice. The first one is in verse 19. It says, A scribe came up and said to Jesus, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, scribes are sort of like the religious scholars. They're like Bible and theology teachers in ancient Israel. And this scribe, um, it seems like, is saying the good thing. I'm going to follow you wherever you go. There's already a hint in that verse, though, that maybe it's not all it's cracked up to be. Uh, he calls Jesus teacher or rabbi. That's not a bad thing. And Jesus is referred to that way. But in Matthew particularly, every time he has somebody call Jesus teacher instead of something like Lord, which we'll see the next person do, it's always portrayed negatively as that person kind of not getting it. They're interested in Jesus. They think he's kind of an interesting you know, scholar or something, but they're not following him. But he says, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And then in verse 20, Jesus responds, and he says, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus' challenge is fundamentally to say, okay, but you need to know that following me is going to cost you in terms of the comfortable life that you currently have. That even animals have a place to lay their head, but if you follow me in this thing, that's not a thing that I'm promising to you. Now, First question, is Jesus saying that to be his follower means we have to be homeless or you can't own a house or have a place to sleep at night? The answer is no, and this is where we need to just name something that will pop up a number of times throughout Matthew's gospel. Jesus, uniquely, unlike any other kind of human that we would see in scripture, Jesus has a supernatural insight into the human heart. He is able to look at people and see them and see into them in a way that allows him to understand their heart. And often when we see him speaking to people, he's speaking out of that. It's not just the words they're saying. It's not just that this guy's coming and saying, Jesus, I want to follow you. And he's like, cool, you have to sell your house and live on the streets. It's rather that this guy comes to him and says, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. But Jesus looks at him and knows his heart and recognizes that this is the thing that could potentially keep him from doing it. An attachment to a sort of security and comfort and home that is not something that he has promised in following Jesus and is something in a real sense that he might even have to pay as a cost in following Jesus. And so he speaks that challenge. How does that meet us? Again, this isn't a sort of simple, literal command, right? But let me just name for us just like this guy, there are ways that we can miss this. Let me just look, just bluntly, we have often in our country been sold the lie that following Jesus faithfully is 100% compatible with living the American dream, 
right? And, and, and th- there's different versions of the American dream. Like maybe for you, that's like live in the suburbs with your union job and your white picket fence and 2.3 kids. Or maybe that's like have a condo in a cool city and get to eat at fancy restaurants every night. Or maybe that's like, oh, the like Instagram influencer, you know, like I'm, you know, feet on the beach, whatever, every other month or something. There's different versions of that dream, but we often, on some level deep in our hearts, believe and have been told by our culture, even by other Christians, that those things are completely compatible. Now, I am not saying that you can't ever experience any of that. There are all sorts of material blessings that we get to experience in life, and that is a good and sweet thing. But Jesus would say to all of us that, one, we are not promised any of that, and two, that uh, we will never get to fully participate in that unless we are compromising on following him. First, we're not promised any of that. And that's to say there are sweet, great blessings. It's a good thing. Don't, you know, don't hear me saying some, oh, if you have any joy or any material comfort, you're sinning. That's not what Jesus is saying. But there is a way that there are times that there are things that we want or even have that get taken away from us, and we can feel a real sense of betrayal from God if we think that those things are promised to us. If we think that following Jesus means we're always going to be prosperous and healthy and comfortable and secure, and we go through seasons where we're unhealthy or uncomfortable or insecure, that can cause us to feel like God has betrayed us when, in fact, he never promised us those things. And then more deeply and maybe more challengingly, following Jesus means that we will not be able to have all of those things as fully as people who aren't following him. And this is where, again, I want to be so careful because I don't want us to feel beat up, and we'll get to that in a minute, but just, I feel like there is this math problem that I sometimes have with how I'm tempted to view the world and that all of us have, which is this. We look around at our neighbors and we see a sort of lifestyle that a given neighbor that's in the same kind of socioeconomic class and stuff as us has, right? And, and we think, like, I should be able to have that. But the thing is that, that 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 lifestyle they have, and I'm just ignoring the fact that lots of people are in massive debt and there's other stuff that you can't see, but, like, that lifestyle is the product of a certain investment of time and money and energy, right? That, that the reason that you have that given set of parameters and that house navigation, all that is a result of that kind of math of, you know, of taking all of this time and energy and money and investing it to get those things. And while we can experience some of those things, Jesus calls us to spend all of those things differently, right? That the way we spend our time should reflect a desire to care for other people and to spend time with him and prioritize rest and worship. The way we spend our money should include generosity and caring for the least of these and forwarding his mission in the world. The way that we spend our energy should be pouring it out in service to other people. And again, that doesn't mean that we can't have a job and make a good salary and stuff, but the simple reality is because of that, that like the math just doesn't add up if we think that we're going to be able to have it all in terms of the world and also have it all in terms of the kingdom. There will be ways that following Jesus will cost us. And that doesn't mean that it's not worth it. It is so worth it. We'll get to that in a minute. But it does mean that it's something we need to confront when we think about being one of his followers. Now, I say all of that. And like I said, I am not saying that to make us feel beat up or discouraged, right? And I am not saying that because we should all feel guilty about the good comforts that we do have and the good blessings of God. But I say that just to say that I think there's an important place for self-examination when we think about the American dream and the kind of comfort that Jesus offers us in this life, to be asking, 
am I making his kingdom, following him, the center of things? Or is there a way that I'm kind of trying to have it all, right? To have, to have him in one hand and to have all of this stuff from the world in the other. So we need to examine ourselves. So Jesus' challenges our relationship to comfort. And then next he challenges what I'm going to call our relationship to identity. Our relationship to our identity. So if you pick up in verse 21, it says this. It says, Another of the disciples said to Jesus, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. So, this guy says, Jesus, let me go and bury my father. And to be clear, even in our world, that's a reasonable request. And in Jesus' world, it's an even more reasonable-seeming request because... Uh, in the Old Testament, you're actually commanded for your parents within 24 hours of them dying to have buried them and given them an honorable burial as part of your kind of obligations to honor your parents. Uh, so <laughs> that's a hard thing. Now, a lot of people think that the language he uses here indicates that his father isn't actually dead yet, and that would change the meaning a lot. That's not for sure, but that would make a lot more sense to Jesus's response. It's not Jesus, my father died this morning, I need to go bury him, but rather it's my father is sick, right? Maybe in days or weeks or months or years he will pass away, and I want to wait to be your follower until I can kind of deal with this thing in my life, and that makes it more understandable. But regardless, Jesus's response is still challenging, isn't it? He simply says, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. And so we might think, man, <laughs> that's cold, right? Right? And also, how does that fit with honoring our parents? So this is, again, where what we said in the last point is really important here, too. When we see Jesus in this, these interactions, it's crucial to recognize that he's seeing into the hearts of the people that he's talking to. And he's speaking not just to the words they're saying, but to the underlying issues that he recognizes there. And I think the issue that Jesus is seeing in this guy's heart is an issue of identity. Now, this is where we might be confused because we might read this and just think, well, isn't this just about family, right? Isn't he just talking about his family? But here's the deal. In our world, when we think about our families, when we think about something like caring for our parents, we see that as about love and gratitude, basically. When I say, why, you know, why do I care for my parents? Why does it one of us in America think about that. It's one, because we love them. We feel an affection for them and a care for them. Uh, they love, you know, they loved us and we know them and stuff. And two, a sense of gratitude that they raised us and sacrificed for us and so we should sacrifice for them. And those things were present in the ancient world. But probably more centrally in, in Jesus's world, the reason people honored their family was because of issues of their own honor and their identity. Who your family wasn't just was, wasn't just this sort of interesting fact about you. It was who you were. I mean, it, who your parents were, who your siblings were, the kind of performance and place in society of your family was really in the eyes of the people around you. That was who you were. And especially if it was an honorable family, that was a huge source of honor for you. And when you uh, failed in some way to hold up society's standards of caring for or being a part of your family, that was massively shameful to you. It was an issue of identity for you and how you were viewed. And I think what Jesus recognizes in this man and several other times in the Gospel of Matthew is that those other identities, even family identity, can be something that can come into tension with his call to be his follower. 
Uh, in Matthew 10 and 12, we'll see later as we keep walking through the gospel in different ways, he challenges family loyalty as well. And the reason is because he's saying not that family's bad, not that we shouldn't honor our family appropriately, but that who we are in the kingdom is defined not by our family or the way we engage with them, but it is defined by Jesus, our King, and our Heavenly Father. That who we are ultimately is defined by Jesus as our King and Elder Brother and God as our Heavenly Father, and that all other identities, even family in this world, are secondary to that. Now, we live in a world, like I said, that's a little bit different from Jesus' world. Uh, we don't have the same identity and honor stuff with family, even though we're still deeply connected in some cases to our families. And it's a good thing, again, to honor your parents. That's a biblical command. But for all of us, I think it's easy for us to do this with different identities in the world. And to, make, to have this make sense, let me just walk through how, how I think this works, all right? So first of all, just think about the world in terms of groups, right? Groups that are bigger than you. Maybe it's groups you're already in like family that you're born into or like that group of friends or some other group that you're in. Or maybe it's a group you really want to be in, like that group of people at work that go golf together and seem to get all the promotions or that, you know, that group of moms that hang out at the park or, you know, that, that, that you want to be included in. There's that group you want to be in. Or a bigger group, right, in our world. The, the, again, the political party or the, the, the organization or the, the label that you can apply to yourself. We have these groups in the world, and all of us are members of different groups. That's not a bad thing by itself, right? That's kind of stage one. Secondly, all of those groups, to some extent, seek to shape our identity. That's the part that we maybe have a harder time, but it's true for everybody, right? Being in a group is not just a question of participation, but it is a question of having your kind of identity be shaped, of, def of definition, not just participation. I mean, even, even something like family, uh, we recognize that the choices we make in the world and who we are gets shaped because of the family we're a part of. I would not probably have moved back here a couple years ago if it wasn't for the fact that I am a Nebraskan too because it's the best state and, you know, I have that loyalty there. Uh, and, you know, and a part of my family who I was moving back to be close to. Uh, and even those other groups, right, will ask us, yeah, I mean, if you want to go golf with those business people, right, to get in with them, you got to learn how to play golf and work on your golf game and spend money on golf clubs. I don't know why I'm using this as an example because I've never golfed in my life. But, uh, <laughs> but, so we're all a part of groups, and all of those groups, to some extent, shape who we are, and all of that is still okay. It's unavoidable, in fact, but, and this is where it starts to get complicated, the different groups we're a part of, the different things that shape our identity, often create tensions within us. And even before we introduce Jesus into the picture, that's a thing you recognize, right? That, like, what you do for a living, if you work outside of the home, that will shape your identity, but it will also have a tendency to shape your identity in ways that causes you to neglect your family or friends or other parts of your life. There are ways that it can start to shape you that create a tension with that other identity that you have as a husband or wife or a parent or something like that. And so you have those tensions that are created. And again, all sorts of groups create that, right? I mean, man, if you've ever like lived next door to somebody who is a neighbor and, and you like, right? You, you have like that sense of like, oh, we're a part of the neighborhood. That's an identity. But they also have like, say, political views that are way different than yours. And there's that tension you recognize. Those different identities can create tensions. That's, that's where things start to get hard, especially because every group that I've just named, 
family, friends, those people at work, those people at the park, party, organization, all of those groups at times will shape our identities in ways that create tensions with the identity we're called to have in Jesus, our identity as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Not that you can't be a part of some group, not that you can't even have it shape you, but in, it, it is inevitable that any worldly identity at times will create tensions with our identity as followers of Jesus. And what Jesus is saying here fundamentally is that the choice we have to make is to always have our identity as his follower be the most foundational. That that, that even if it means something like leaving your father unburied in this case, which again, that's not some command to all of us in a general way, but even if it's something that extreme, he's saying, following me means you have to be willing to let that thing die and let the dead bury their own dead. That following Jesus has to always come first. And again, we need to always be examining ourselves to make sure that we aren't letting those other identities that we have cause us to compromise the identity we have in Jesus. So, we have a new relationship to comfort, a new relationship to identity. Then let's skip over to Matthew 9, where we see Jesus call Matthew. I think we see a third new relationship, which is our relationship to calling as well. Our relationship to calling and vocation and work. So, in verse 9, Jesus passed on from there. Side note, He's back on the other side of the lake now. We're kind of skipping over the stuff that happens in the Decapolis, but back in Galilee. But Jesus passed on from there, and he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he rose and followed him. So Matthew is a tax collector working at a tax booth. Basically, what that means is this. Uh, Capernaum, which we said is the city that Jesus is back at now, is right on the border between... uh, these two kind of regions that are ruled by different kings underneath the Roman Empire. And there was just kind of like in our world, if you're moving between different nations or whatever, there's these customs and tariffs that people have to pay, these dues as they transport goods back and forth. And Matthew seems to be the guy who's in charge of a booth where these merchants come and, and pay these tariffs. Now, a couple of things to understand about that. One, this is something that's really easy to miss, but that is a cushy job in a world where almost nobody has cushy jobs. Like, we all live in this world where, like, most people, the majority of people have jobs where they sit at desks and push around paper and, you know, I mean, type on their laptops or whatever. But in Jesus' world, like, 97% of people are farmers, right? They're working hard physical labor, back-breaking physical work from sunup to sundown. And so somebody like Matthew, who gets to just take people's money and stamp documents and do that and get very rich from it, that's an incredibly sweet gig in the eyes of the world. So it's a cushy job. Two, it's also a corrupt job almost always in the Roman Empire. On some level, that's just a react. Like, again, this is a thing maybe in America we don't think about because exceptionally in history, we don't have a lot of corruption. And again, I know that you think, oh, really? Why? But, but, but look, if you've traveled to majority world countries with real corruption, you know what I mean. Like, you have to pay a bribe for everything, right? Like, it's just programmed into the thing. You know, the the cop pulls you over, and it's like, here's my $100 bill, and also I get the ticket from the government. Uh, Corruption is, I mean, in in those kinds of societies, man, like, being a bureaucrat, you get 
a lot of money, right? It's an incredibly wealthy job. And that's actually programmed in basically to how Rome did tax collecting. Uh, Roman, the Roman government didn't pay a salary to tax collectors. They basically said, you are required to collect X amount of money for us, and you have sort of the right to beat people up and use the power of the state to collect money, and you can collect as much over that as you can get away with, and that's your salary. <laughs> so it's inevitably corrupt, and because of that, tax collectors are hated by everybody else in society. They are looked at, right, both because of the envy of the cushy jobs they have and the rightful indignation at the corruption. Everybody hates tax collectors. So Jesus comes to Matthew, this tax collector, sitting in his tax booth collecting money, and there is no details were given about what's going on. We know nothing about Matthew's story before this point. We know nothing about his psychology or what's going on in his head or his heart. But Jesus simply looks at Matthew and says, follow me. And Matthew gets up and leaves his tax booth and leaves being a tax collector, as we see kind of from the details throughout the Gospels, and becomes a follower of Jesus. Now there's something beautiful and something really challenging about that. The beautiful part is that we see Jesus just look at Matthew, who's despised by society, and say, hey, I want you to be one of the people who's following me. And we're going to see Jesus in just a minute take a hit to his own reputation for it. We'll come back to that. That's beautiful. And even the sort of simplicity of just, and Matthew gets up and follows him, that's beautiful. But there's also something deeply challenging to this, because Matthew's whole way of life, right? His job is basically ended because he becomes a follower of Jesus. He has to give up this cushy, lucrative lifestyle to become a disciple. Anyone in the scriptures, even this corrupt tax collector, even the worst of sinners, anyone can become a follower of Jesus, but he isn't going to leave them in the place where they are. And he calls them to not be corrupt tax collectors anymore. So, Thinking about ourselves as followers of Jesus, this means that not just our sense of material comfort and the American dream, not just our sense of identity in the groups we're in, but also our sense of calling is something that we need to submit to the leading of Jesus. Now, I'm intentionally using the word calling here because it's broader than just your job. But obviously, for lots of us, a big part of our calling is what we do. Uh, that makes a living. But maybe you're a stay-at-home parent and that's a central part of your calling. Also, think about all the ways that you can volunteer or the hobbies that you have if you do like music or theater or something. There's different parts of your life that can be different callings. But we have these callings in life and, um, and Jesus calls us to submit all of them to him. Now, I'm using the word submit really carefully because unlike Matthew, most of us probably aren't going to be called to just leave our jobs as soon as we become a follower of Jesus. In fact, we see many of the other disciples, like Peter and Andrew, who are fishermen, continuing off and on to be fishermen, even as they are disciples who are following Jesus. Paul continues to make tents to make a living as he is an apostle. Uh, I mean, I guess if you're like a drug dealer or something, sorry, like probably you're just going to have to bail on it. But it's not necessarily the case that you're going to have to find a new job to be a follower of Jesus. But it does mean two things for us. First, it means for all of us that how we pursue our calling has to be submitted to Christ. That even if you stay in the same space, Jesus does not necessarily tell you what to do with your life in a specific way. He doesn't come and say, you know, Brad, like, here's what I want you to do for a living for most people in a really clear way. But what Jesus does do 
is to all of us, he's very clear about the ways we are called to do it. That we are called to work in scripture honestly and diligently, putting people first with love for them, uh, with balance with the rest of our lives, for the glory of God, seeking to honor him in everything we do. You could do a whole sermon series on all of that. And there are times, there will be times, that that creates tension for you in the callings that you have. There will be times that you will have to do things differently. There will be times that you maybe can't meet the metrics that people around you can meet. There will be times that you will have to, you know, even pull back in ways that will cause frustration maybe from the people around you in order to honor Jesus in the places that he's called you. Now, I can't, again, the details of that, that's a whole long discussion, right? And it's something you'll have to discern for yourself. But part of being a follower of Jesus means that we should recognize we're called to do things differently in ways that honor him. And secondly, it does mean that we should all be willing and open to changing what we're called to do as part of being a follower of Jesus. Even if for plenty of us it won't involve that, there is a good place for us to be willing to have that on the table. I mean, I think about like a man that I know who turned down a promotion, like a big promotion, because he recognized that he had commitments to his family that needed to come first, or a woman I know who actually quit her career and, uh, and works at a nonprofit now because she recognized that God had given her a heart for this, um, or I think about uh, a family I know who actually didn't move for work because they were like, we're a part of this church and we really feel called to stay here. And again, I'm not saying that you have to do all of that. I know people who stayed at their jobs their whole lives and did it faithfully and that's what God led them to do, but we need to be willing to have that on the table as well. And out of that, if I can maybe speak to one specific group of you, um, Teenagers, I want to talk to you for just a minute, right? Because you're, unlike your parents who are hearing this and may well have been in the same career for 20 years, you're in a space specifically, and I know we have a number of you who are processing through right now or in the next few years those questions of calling. And I want to especially encourage you in this way, which is simply to encourage you to ask this question, right? I don't know what you're supposed to do for a living, and you probably don't right now either, even if you have some thoughts, but I just encourage you to ask this. Are the dreams that you're dreaming about that future, as you kind of sort that out, are the dreams that you're dreaming ultimately about trying to serve Jesus with what you do, or are you letting other things take its place? Not that there's not space for other stuff, right? Like, there are practical... Yes, like, if you go get your film studies degree, you'll probably struggle to put bread on the table and you should probably think about that practical consideration. Yes, there's space to think about your gifts and skills and the things that bring you joy. Don't, don't hear me not acknowledge those things, but at root, the question you need to ask too is, am I dreaming dreams about honoring Jesus, serving the world, serving him in what I do? And if not, seek to make that more of your heart. So we, Jesus calls us to a new relationship to our calling. And then finally, as we close, one more thing that changes in discipleship and that lies behind all of that, and that in all of that, what we're being called to is our relationship to Jesus himself. He's speaking to us about our relationship to Jesus himself. Pick up in Matthew 9 again, in verse 10. So Matthew follows Jesus, and then it says, as Jesus reclined at table in the house, which is Matthew's house, to be clear, Uh, Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, 
He said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, there's a whole other sermon that I would like to preach on this text, and maybe in a few weeks we will. There's this whole other sermon about, uh, about Jesus's priorities and the way too often, speaking of Christianity, getting that label wrong, like the, the image of Christianity is the opposite of Jesus's priorities, right? And that Jesus calls us to hang out with the, the sinners and the despised of the world and, uh, and is suspicious and challenging of the respectable religious folks and embraces those that are outcasts and how, you know, our lives and our dinner tables and all of that should probably look more like that and we should have that heart. I'm not going to preach that sermon right now, but... That is also a very true thing from this text. For today, here's what strikes me about it. We see in this text Jesus' heart. And it's a heart that I think lies behind all of these other calls he's given to people. So he's calling people to follow him and forsake all of this stuff. But we see that coming out of a heart in which Jesus is seeking out those people and forsaking the honor and respect and esteemed places of the world to know and find them. That as much as Jesus calls us to follow him, and that's a challenge to us, that also speaks to us of his remarkable heart of love. We said that we don't really see Matthew's psychology or what's going on here, but I'm sure because this is what immediately follows verse 9 where he calls Matthew, that it's part of this heart of Jesus that causes Matthew to do that, right? To stand up and leave his job as a tax collector and become his follower because he encounters Jesus and sees in him this heart of merciful, welcoming love, and that's the thing that calls them forward. So I was thinking about an image of this, and I, look, here's the deal. This has been in my brain for like the last two weeks, so I'm going to talk about it even though it's weird, but uh, Leah and I finished a TV show, which to be clear, I am not recommending for your kids, but it's called Mrs. Davis, um, and it is a really weird show about this woman who's uh, raised by magicians and becomes a nun in of the Holy Grail to destroy the artificial intelligence that runs the world. It's weird. Um, but there's this really interesting thing that happens in the show because religion is a central part of it and not religion like going to church or whatever. But what happens is this woman who's not a Christian at all, she actually meets Jesus literally in this extra-dimensional falafel restaurant, because again, it's weird, right? And the, I'm not recommending this theologically. But the thing that I just keep thinking about is that she, the way they portray it, she literally meets Jesus, and something about his heart and his manner and his love is so radically transformative to her that she immediately decides that she wants to give her whole life to him, literally marry him, which is why she becomes a nun, which again, I'm not recommending. And, and it's like one of just the things that's assumed for her whole character. And that's just stuck with me because I'm like, I don't think I've ever on like TV or a movie or something seen anything that is so right as that to what Christianity is meant to be. That, that, that is simply, we encounter Jesus and see his heart and experience his love for us. And that's what makes all of this stuff that we've just said make sense. That, yeah, we might lose our comfort and we might have to change our identities and we might have God mess with our callings, but we get Jesus and that is worth it. That's the thing that I keep thinking about from that show. And that is the thing that I found myself thinking about from this text. 
that we see Jesus coming and seeking the sinners and the lost and eating with them even though it costs him and joining in fellowship with them. And ultimately, we're going to see that over and over in the gospel and see that climax in the cross as Jesus suffers and dies to welcome sinners and reveal his heart of love as he pays for our sins and calls us to know him. And it is in seeing that, getting that new relationship with Jesus, that everything else we've just said makes sense. That everything else we've just said is worth it. We experience that love that Jesus has for us. And so we follow him. So as he says later, we take up our crosses and follow him. Because while it might cost us in terms of comfort and identity and calling in this world, what we get in return is Jesus. And that's infinitely worth the trade.